This is the place where Black is the main character, where we dive into something new like the latest season of Them, The Scare, and the award-winning American fiction. Or add to the experience by buying or renting the biopic of a legend, Bob Marley, One Love. And add on channels like Paramount Plus and Stars to bask in nostalgia with Beverly Hills Cop and BMF. Explore Prime Video's culture-rated collection and enjoy old-school greats and new-school hits. Restrictions apply. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. In the 1992 horror cult classic film, Candyman, curiosity takes a grad student places she never thought she'd find herself. Our lead, Helen Lyle, played by Virginia Madsen, is a young white woman who wanders into Chicago's near-north-side housing projects. She is there to research an urban legend, chant Candyman five times in front of a mirror, and a one-armed maniac with a knife will appear. This concept is reminiscent of the Bloody Mary legend that terrified many of us as kids. The idea you could be alone in the safety of your own home and suddenly have a violent predator in front of you is more than just a little unsettling. In the film, the Candyman legend is tied to a series of murders in the projects. Our heroine Ellen aims to determine if the culprit is the homicidal phantom or a real human being? Candyman is an adaptation of the short story The Forbidden, written by British horror novelist Clive Barker. Unlike the movie, the short story is set in England in a dilapidated housing development. It was an intentional choice to make the character Candyman African-American in the movie. Barker actually never mentions the character's race in his story. And while the movie veers more towards scary entertainment rather than focusing on symbolism, Barker's story brings into focus the divide between the haves and the have-nots. Of course, the social and racial divide were very real in the housing projects of 1980s Chicago. These buildings were a physical manifestation of modern racial segregation. 
The film setting of Cabrini Green was an actual housing development for low-income residents in Chicago's near north side. But it was one of the city's several projects, most of which were in constant state of disrepair. Chicago's low-income housing has a long history of decline. In the 1950s and 60s, the Chicago Housing Authority, or CHA, prioritized building new public housing and expanding the few already in existence. Most of the new developments were visually plain, but expansive. Each high-rise averaged about a thousand apartments, and some stretched up to 19 stories. In theory, the CHA sought to offer public housing that would radically and economically integrate the city. Their intent was to scatter the sites of those housing projects all over the metro, occupied by solely white middle-class citizens. According to the Chicago Reader, quote, white aldermen weren't able to tolerate public housing projects in their wards. So the projects ended up in black ghettos, where they soon filled with African Americans on public aid. A cluster of housing projects in Southside Chicago formed what was referred to as the State Street Corridor. In a four-mile stretch, there were Stateway Gardens, Ida B. Wells Homes, Dearborn Homes, and Ike's Homes. There were also Robert Taylor Homes, the largest public housing project in the country at the time. With over 4,000 units spread across 28 16-story buildings, Rockwell Gardens and Homes Homes sat on the city's west side in what is still considered one of the most dangerous areas of Chicago. Not far from Cabrini Green, you could find Grace Abbott Homes, one of four near west side housing projects clustered together, referred to as ABLA. Of the four buildings, Abbott Homes were considered the most dangerous. The Abbott buildings were dark and run down, with elevators that barely worked and lots of unlit stairways. Gang members known as Paymasters, who represented a faction of the black gangsters' disciplines, roamed the halls by shouting, quote, We got what you want, we got what you need, end quote. They advertised the tenants their supply of PCP, crack cocaine, heroin or reefer. Journalist Steve Bagaira wrote about Abbott Holmes in the Chicago Reader, saying, quote, Fiends really are lurking in the shadows here, in these towers. You're crazy if you're not always looking over your shoulder, end quote. It was in this dismal setting that 52-year-old grandmother Ruthie McCoy lived alone. In surprising ways, the misfortune she experienced mirrored elements of the Candyman movie. But her story wasn't a fictional tale. It was her life. Ruthie Mae McCoy was born in 1935 in Hughes, Arkansas. Little is known of her early life. When she was young, her parents moved their eight children to Chicago's South Side. According to an article written by the Chicago Public Library, between 1940 and 1944, around 60,000 African Americans migrated from the South to Chicago in search of employment. Ruthie's father earned a meager wage by loading wagons in various coal yards across the city. Miss McCoy was a homemaker who raised the children with strong religious convictions. 
As a devout Baptist, she always made sure the kids attended church services. In ninth grade, Ruthie attended Wendell Phillips Academy, the first predominantly African-American high school in the city of Chicago. She only lasted there for a little over a year. Ruthie dropped out in the 10th grade. From that point and into her 20s, Ruthie exhibited signs she was starting to struggle with mental illness. She frequently talked to herself, seemed paranoid, and had angry outbursts. Her siblings, who had remained in a spiritual path, felt Ruthie's mental illness was a result of her straying from her faith. Ruthie never married, but she did have one child. In 1962, at the age of 27, Ruthie gave birth to a baby girl she named Vanita. The child's father didn't stick around for long. This abandonment and the disappointment that went with it cast a shadow over Ruthie's perception of men for the rest of her life. Throughout Vanita's childhood, she stayed with relatives off and on whenever Ruthie was institutionalised. During one of her stays, Ruthie was put on medication, which lessened the severity of her symptoms when she remembered and was willing to take it. Ruthie struggled to make ends meet as a single mother. She worked menial jobs as a housekeeper and then a laundromat assistant, but her mental health issues kept her from holding a job longer than a month or two. Like so many other low-income single mothers at the time, Ruthie built a life in the projects and survived the best way she knew how. In Vernita's early years, they lived in the Southside Project, known as Dearborn Homes. As Vernita got older, and Ruthie's mental health continued to deteriorate, they moved into cramped apartments on the south and west sides of the city. Vernita must have had a difficult childhood. She was either surrounded by the illicit activity of the projects, or was being shuffled between households. When she was 21, Vernita spent a few months in the Cook County Jail for an aggravated battery charge. A few years after Vernita's release, the basement apartment she and her mother shared in Humboldt Park flooded. Ruthie applied for emergency CHA housing, requesting placement in Wentworth Gardens on the south side close to relatives. In a second letter to CHA, she requested not to be placed in a high-rise. Both requests were disregarded. She and Vernita were relocated to Abbott Homes in 1983. Out of nearly 3,600 people living in Abbott Homes, all of them were African-American. The majority of residents were under 18, and 85% of families were headed by women. In the 1980 census, the average family there pulled in around $4,527 a year. It's no wonder poverty was passed down through generations. It was a chronic issue that showed no signs of going away. To save money, the city of Chicago slacked on upkeep. Graffiti with gang symbols and all littered the hallways. Crime ran rampant in the ABLA housing projects. According to Chicago Reader journalist Steve Begira, quote, residents of ABLA are beaten, raped, and murdered twice as often as they are citywide, end quote. Ruthie was right to be weary of high-rises, 
1972 study of New York City high-rises performed by housing expert Oscar Newman revealed crime rates actually increased with the height of buildings, the size of the projects, and the distance buildings are from the street. Begira speculates the cause of this in his 1987 Chicago Reader article, quote, they came in through the bathroom mirror, end quote. He says high-rises provide a more anonymous way of living and in turn make residents less inclined to look out for their fellow neighbours. In May of 1983, Ruthie's two-bedroom on the 11th floor became a little more cramped. Vernita moved her boyfriend, Louis Butler, and their two young kids in with her and her mother. Right away, Ruthie and Butler did not get along. The truth was, Ruthie didn't give the father of her grandchildren a chance. She often compared him to Vernita's father and didn't trust him because of her sweeping generalization that all men were no good. By 1985, tensions between Ruthie and Butler had reached their peak. The young family moved out, leaving Ruthie on her own. With her grandchildren and daughter no longer living there, Ruthie grew depressed. Residents who interacted with Miss May, as they called her, started to notice changes in her behavior. The way she dressed made her look unkept, and her attitude was described as ornery. The well-natured older woman, who once seemed friendly, suddenly cursed at strangers and waved her walking stick at teens who blocked her path. Ruthie blamed the world for her feelings of abandonment, a pattern that seemed to afflict her at every stage of her life. Residents were far from compassionate. It's likely no one took the time to understand what she was going through. Instead, they responded by threatening or ridiculing her. On more than one occasion, police had to intervene when she, quote, got into a scrape, end quote. Ruthie's sense of paranoia magnified the anxiety she felt about being mugged or burglarised. She was fixated on locks. One neighbour recalled her touring the 11th floor hallway and turning doorknobs to see if people locked their doors. Residents who left their doors unlocked were given a lecture by Ruthie about safety. Housing records by CHA also indicate Ruthie requested for her lock to be changed at least twice. Living alone undoubtedly aggravated her mental problems. According to neighbours, soon after Vanita and her family moved out, Ruthie began behaving bizarrely. On one winter day, residents saw her lying in the snow, giggling to herself as she made snow angels. A few residents commented on Ruthie's tendency to overdress in the summer. She could often be spotted in a long winter coat and wearing several layers of pants in the July heat. Aside from brief encounters, Ruthie mostly kept to herself. Her apartment was at the end of a corridor on the 11th floor. Between her apartment's location in the building and her being one of the oldest residents, Ruthie was incredibly isolated. She was able to see her daughter and grandchildren on a fairly regular basis, but obviously not as much as when they were all living under one roof. On August 10, 1986, a series of events transpired that would set Ruthie on a new path. She had been babysitting her oldest grandchildren, four-year-old Bobby, when he fell down some stairs. Ruthie brought him to the ER of Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's Medical Center 
where he was treated for deep cuts on his arms, legs, and face. Ruthie was acting oddly, according to medical staff, which made them question if Ruthie had pushed Bobby down the stairs. The Department of Child and Family Services was called in to investigate, which agitated Ruthie so much she needed to be put in restraints. Oddly enough, there is no records of an investigation into Ruthie's alleged abuse, and Vernita denied any signs of misconduct from her mother. Vernita arrived at the hospital to pick up Bobby. While she was there, she signed commitment papers for her mother to be taken to Illinois State Psychiatric Institute, or ISPI. While institutionalized, Ruthie's mental illness was finally given a name. Doctors determined she had residual type schizophrenia, which is defined by an absence of prominent behavioral problems, but there is a presence of schizophrenic tendencies such as social isolation, vague or digressive speech, and odd beliefs. Through hard work, medication, and intensive therapy sessions, Ruthie vastly improved her mental health. She was discharged on September the 18th, a little over a month after being admitted. She was advised to get follow-up care at Mount Sinai and began their outpatient therapy program on September the 23rd. Sandy Siegel, clinical coordinator of the Mount Sinai Hospital Community Psychiatric Center, described her first impressions of Ruthie to the Chicago Reader. She said she was, quote, frightened and distrustful, wary of other clients, end quote. It was a struggle to get her to open up in the beginning. But after Siegel helped Ruthie take care of, quote, some of the business she had to attend to in order to run her life, end quote, she seemed to warm up. Mental illness and poverty sometimes go hand in hand. They can also act as a self-perpetuating cycle. Struggling with mental health can create difficulty in obtaining and keeping employment. So it should come as no surprise that most patients in the outpatient treatment program were ABLA residents. Outpatient treatment gave Ruthie a much-needed social outlet. Three days of her week were spent at the center in group therapy sessions, arts and crafts workshops, community meals, and GED classes. On a placement test, Ruthie scored at a 7th grade level. The assessment did little to deter her. She left the project early most weekday mornings to study for her GED exam. Siegel recognized the positive shift in Ruthie's behavior. She told the Chicago Reader she had gotten really isolated in the project because she was so afraid to leave her house. The center gave her a feeling of being more connected to the people around her. She was learning to trust people here. I'm not saying Ruthie didn't have problems, but she was doing things to conquer those problems. One of the factors Siegel kept focusing on was how impactful Ruthie's living situation was on her mental health. Several times, Ruthie requested a transfer to a lower floor in her building or a row house. Siegel even wrote a letter to the CHA in support of the request, just as before, her request was overlooked. The last time the clinical coordinator saw Ruthie, she told Siegel, quote, I need help now getting an apartment somewhere else. 
I've got to get out of there, end quote. After that, Ruthie climbed into the medical transport van that would take her back to her home. Abbott Homes had a bizarre architectural feature. Certain adjacent units were connected by their medicine cabinets. Ruthie's apartment number was 1109. Unit 1108 was mostly vacant for the better part of 1987. To travel between units, someone simply had to remove their bathroom's medicine cabinet and climb over some pipes before climbing into the connected apartment. The design was intended to give maintenance staff easy access to plumbing fixtures if repairs were needed, but residents found other uses. Some residents exploited the package between units for looting. The medicine cabinets were also a stealthy way for a drug dealer to evade police capture by escaping out of the door of a nearby unit. According to the Chicago reader's Steve Begira, quote, even the dullest youth here knows you can slither from one apartment to the adjacent one through the pipe chase, about two and a half feet across between the cabinets, end quote. The Daily Mail also added the cabinets were only held in the wall by six nails and wasn't much of an obstacle. On April 22, 1987, at around 8.45 p.m., dispatchers received a puzzling 911 call from Ruthie McCoy. She sounded frantic as she said, I'm a resident at 1440 West 13th Street, and some people next door are totally tearing this down. You know, they want to come through the bathroom. The dispatcher didn't understand the nature of the call and filed it as a disturbance with a neighbor complaint. She said she would send a 12th district car to Abbott. 902 rolled around and officers still hadn't arrived. Because of how the call had been categorized, it didn't seem like a serious emergency. Had the dispatcher filed it as a break-in attempt, Chicago PD may have acted more quickly. Dispatchers received a second call from the Abbott homes at 9.02 p.m. A neighbor had been walking down the hallway when she heard what sounded like gunshots coming from Ruthie's apartment. Another call came in two minutes later from a second neighbor who heard gunshots and hollering coming from apartment 1109. After the eyewitness reports, two more police cars were directed to the scene. At 9.10pm, 25 minutes after Ruthie's 911 call, four officers arrived at her door. When there was no response, an officer asked the dispatcher to call Ruthie's landline. Meanwhile, two more officers arrived in the building. They drove a block away to the project office to get the key to Ruthie's apartment. But for some reason, the key didn't fit the lock possibly because she had it changed several times. The janitor in the project office informed the officers there was no other keys for apartment 1109. At around 9.45pm, the officers left. Nothing more was done until the following evening, when Ruthie's neighbour, Deborah Lasley, contacted police out of concern. She said Ruthie usually stopped by her apartment on the way out of the building each morning, and whenever she returned in the afternoon. That day, Ruthie hadn't stopped by. When she remembered seeing police officers outside Ruthie's door the night before, it gave her extra cause for concern. 
Half a dozen police officers, along with a handful of CHA security guards, approached Ruthie's door for the second night in a row. Again, knocks and calls went unanswered. While the police wanted to break down the door, CHA security discouraged the idea and issued a warning that the tenant could sue if they broke in. Unbelievably, the officers decided to leave. Seeing law enforcement was doing little to help, Ruthie's neighbor, Deborah, contacted the ABLA project office. They sent in a carpenter who drilled through the lock. Discovery of Body On April the 24th, Ruthie's body was found on her bedroom floor. She was lying on her side in a pool of blood with one shoe on and a hand pressed to her chest. Papers, magazines and coins were seen scattered on the floor. Medical examiner Dr Yupin Choi determined her cause of death as internal bleeding. She had been shot four times. The first bullet passed through her left shoulder. The second went through her left thigh, while the third bullet entered the right side of her abdomen, pierced her liver and then exited the left side of her abdomen. The final, fatal bullet passed through her right upper arm, entered her chest and severed the pulmonary vein. The coroner believed Ruthie may not have died immediately, but it wasn't drawn out either. He felt it's likely she would not have survived even if she had been rushed to the hospital. At 4.35pm on April the 24th, Ruthie May McCoy was pronounced dead at the Cook County Hospital. A church service was held on the south side on April the 30th. A bulletin distributed to those in attendance read, quote, Life was hard for Ruthie May, end quote. Her murder barely made the news. The case was covered in the black-owned newspaper, the Chicago Defender, and it got a passing mention in the Chicago Tribune for the sole reason that the medicine cabinet angle was so bizarre. But that would be no nightly local news updates or attention-grabbing headlines. Chicago reader-journalist Steve Bogera offered some insight on the lack of coverage by saying, Project killings just aren't news ordinarily. CHA residents are blown away, knifed, and kicked to death almost every week. Two or three times a week in warmer weather. It's hard not to recognize how extensive coverage would have been if the victim had been white and living in one of the more upscale Chicago neighborhoods. But because police were summoned to the ABLA projects on a regular basis, and sometimes there were hoax calls, It's not exactly surprising that Ruthie's 911 call resulted in half measures by Chicago officers. Investigation Detectives Ray Lusa and Anthony Menina conducted a basic investigation. By canvassing the building, they learned from residents that break-ins through medicine cabinets had been happening for at least a year prior. This explained why there were no signs of forced entry. They discovered three of Ruthie's personal items were missing from the unit. Her phone, her television, and a rocking chair. It was difficult to tell if money had been stolen, because only coins had been left behind. 
but investigators suspected money was a potential motive, especially after learning Ruthie had been awarded almost $2,000 in retroactive social security payments and had recently been approved for social security income based on her mental illness. This meant her monthly income would double. Was it possible someone knew about Ruthie's newfound financial security and wanted to rip her off? Ruthie had been victimised before. Later in her life, she had gotten back in touch with her faith. Unfortunately, there were predators out there who will take advantage of the devout, and Ruthie's untrusting nature didn't carry over to religious matters. Vanita told detectives a Baptist preach from Fort Lauderdale had written to her mother asking for money. One New York minister sent her a piece of so-called sacred anointed wood and asked her to mail a donation in exchange. Vanita had tried her best to talk her mother out of complying to these solicitations, but failed to stop her. Vernita also mentioned burglars had come in through Ruthie's medicine cabinet the year before. Her mother had reported the break-in to CHA and claimed no one had come by to re-secure the cabinet. Upon further investigation, the CHA had nothing about the incident listed in her housing record. However, Ruthie's next-door neighbor, Margaret Barrage, had moved out a few weeks before the homicide. She told police she remembered seeing the cabinet leaning against the bathtub early in the year. Sure enough, when Detective Louser examined Ruthie's bathroom, he could see an opening in the wall where her medicine cabinet should have been. With that bizarre potential lead, detectives searched housing records for information on the vacant unit next door, 1108. The rent had been paid to the end of May, and the part-time tenants were not the leaseholders. The name on the lease was a female friend of Tim Brown, a man who had friends in the ABLA area because he had grown up there. The friend no longer lived there and had given Brown the keys. Apartment 1108 was frequented by drug addicts, some of whom were relatives of John Hondras. 25-year-old Hondras had spent his formative years living in an Abbott unit, so he still had friends in the neighbourhood. One of those was 19-year-old Edward Turner. Hondras, Turner and a few other young men often used apartment 1108 as a social gathering place where drugs and alcohol were consumed. Edward Turner had a history of aggression. In grammar school, he got into fights so frequently, his mother moved him to Montefiore, which specialised in disciplinary problems. Most of his teen years were spent living in Abbott with his overprotective mother, Aletha. She was concerned her son would get in with the wrong crowd. When he turned 18, just as she had relaxed his strict rules, both Turner and Hondras were unemployed. John Hondras also had prior convictions, one count for robbery and two counts for possession of a stolen vehicle. Tim Brown had spent most of April the 22nd in the apartment and gave detectives his account of events the night Ruthie McCoy was killed. At around 3 p.m. on April 22nd, Brown had his friend Corey Flournoy over. The men lifted weights into the early evening. At 8 p.m., Hondras, Turner, and a friend of Brown's named Bo came by. Everyone hung out for a few hours and listened to music, according to Brown. 
Around three hours later, Hondras and Bo entered the bathroom. Bo was overheard telling Hondras how he could break into the adjacent apartment through the medicine cabinet. Both Bo and Flournoy left soon after. This new information got Hondras confused. He brought Turner into the bathroom and told him about what he had just learned. When Hondras pulled at the medicine cabinet, it came off the wall without much effort. Behind the cabinet, he could see straight into the bathroom of Unit 1109 and knew then that the other medicine cabinet wasn't up on the wall. Without hesitation, Hondras climbed through to the other bathroom. The next thing Brown heard was a woman's voice shouting, Who's there? Then a knock came on the front door of 1108. Hondras had appeared to ask Brown to hand him his jacket. He went back into 1109, this time using the front door. Curious about what was happening, Brown went into the bathroom in time to see Turner squeeze through the hole in the wall. He then yelled, Get down, before four shots were fired. When Turner and Hondras left Ruthie's apartment ten minutes later, Brown noticed one of them carrying a television and the other one held a rocking chair. Brown testified the two men returned around two or three hours later. Hondras explained they needed to go back into 1109 to collect the spent gun shells. When they emerged five minutes later, Hondras said they could only find three shells. The two men had tried to cover their tracks as best they could, unaware one bullet remained in Ruthie's body. Ultimately, it was two witness testimonies that confirmed detective suspicions about Turner and Hondras. Lynette Fitch, Tim Brown's girlfriend, was asked by Hondras to store the stolen TV and chair, but she refused to help when the men wouldn't let her know where they came from. Sonia Moore, Turner's girlfriend, also provided some damning evidence to officers. She said, Turner bragged on the night of the 22nd about shooting someone. Later, he tried to backpedal by saying it was all a joke. Detectives would conclude Turner had been trying to impress Sonia, but changed his story when she reacted poorly. With witnesses placing the blame on Turner and Hondras, Chicago detectives felt they now had enough evidence to make an arrest. Edward Turner was arrested a few days after the killing, on his 19th birthday. No bail was set for the high school senior. John Hondras had gone into hiding, so his arrest took a bit longer to carry out. On June 9th, investigators received a tip saying Hondras was on the 9th floor apartment of an Abbott high-rise, a block away from Ruthie's building. Officers went there and found him hiding under a bed, Bail for Hondras was set at $10 million. Hondras and Turner were kept at the Cook County Jail for nearly three years, awaiting trial. The trial began on March the 27th, 1990, at the Cook County Criminal Court. While the crime itself had been unusual, the trial was also outside the norm. I mentioned before about the lack of press coverage on this case and the trial was no exception. No television crews or daily newspaper reporters filled the courtroom galleries when the trial commenced. 
The benches were mostly empty except for a few friends and relatives who came to support the defendants. Only one person appeared on behalf of the victim, Ruthie's brother, Willie McCoy. The calm of this courtroom was in contrast to the courtroom across the hall, where a death sentence hearing for a cop killer was being held. But the lack of public interest didn't discourage Willie, who sought justice for his sister's senseless death. The 57-year-old spoke fondly of Ruthie to Chicago reader-journalist Steve Bagaira, saying, quote, There was a time when I could not eat or sleep knowing what had happened to my sister. She would help anybody. She would give you her shoestrings off her shoes if it would help you, end quote. He said he didn't worry about his sister living alone because he had taught her to be a fighter. Willie also expressed his disdain for the projects to Bagaira. He believed the defendants who should have been on trial for Ruthie's murder were the architects who designed Abbott Homes, commenting, when they stack people in boxes like sardines, of course there's going to be violence. What do they expect? All of them peoples live in danger. Darnell Dean, Hondras's half-brother, agreed with Willie's point and felt neither Hondras or Turner had a chance to make a better life for themselves. He told the Chicago Reader, Youths around the project didn't have any direction. They don't have no place to channel their energy, because nobody wants to be bothered with the projects. It's too many people there packed up in a three-block radius. Those people who are real poor are put with the people that maybe have talent. It should be spread out. But regardless of their life circumstances, the two young men had allegedly committed several criminal acts on the night in question. Turner had opted for a jury trial, while Hondras had chosen a bench trial, so his fate would be decided by presiding judge Michael Getty. Despite the two formats, the trials were conducted simultaneously. Turner's jury was escorted out of the courtroom when arguments were made or any evidence was introduced pertaining solely to Honduras, so their verdict would not be swayed by the other defendant in either case. In opening statements, Assistant State's Attorney William Connolly brought the jury's attention to the 19-inch RCA TV and cane-backed rocking chair stolen from Ruthie. Several witnesses had told authorities they saw the men carrying those items that night. Turner's attorney... Crystal Marchigiani insisted in her opening statements Turner had been carrying the television set the night of the murder, but claimed he was lending his friend a hand. As documented in the Chicago Reader, the defense attorney told the jury, quote, You may be convinced that Edward Turner was very stupid, but what you will not find is that you are convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that he had anything to do with the murder of Ruthie McCoy. End quote. Hondras' attorney, Alan Sincox, echoed those sentiments about his own client. He emphasized numerous people frequented apartment 1108, and any of them could have been the killer. It would be the state's obligation to prove either or both men had fired those four bullets. Willie McCoy was the state's first witness, confirming the TV and rocking chair as his sister's property. The key witness for the prosecution, however, was Tim Brown. He once again conveyed 
the events of the 22nd as he remembered them. In his statement, he swore to the assistant state's attorney he had not been threatened or promised anything in exchange for his cooperation. There were several problems with Brown's testimony. When he was questioned on April 24th, he claimed to have been handcuffed to a ring on the wall of a small interrogation room for hours. While he was held against his will, an officer allegedly sexually assaulted him and threatened to charge Brown as an accessory to the crime. If his statement had made under duress, it would prove inadmissible. Secondly, Brown's testimony at trial was actually his second statement. In his initial statement, he lied about being in 1108 when the crime occurred, saying he had been at a party at the time on the far west side. Brown's story also didn't match what his friend Corey Flournoy had told detectives. Brown said they both stayed overnight at a friend's house, while Flournoy claimed they stayed in a motel. Only when the inconsistency was pointed out did they admit they had been in 1108 that night. The times both witnesses gave varied, with Brown saying Hondras and Turner had broken into 1109 at 11.30pm, even though Ruthie's call for help was made at 8.45pm. Finally, Tim Brown was a convicted drug dealer. In fact, at the time of the trial, he had to be pulled out of the Vandalia Correction Centre, where he was serving a sentence for possession with intent to distribute. The night of the murder, Brown had been on probation for a similar offence. Hondras's attorney attempted to challenge Brown's believability based on the disparities in his testimony and his reputation. Judge Getty seemed convinced Brown was not a reliable witness. He wrote in the margin of his notes, sometime during Brown's testimony, the man was, quote, a total liar, end quote. In addition to the testimony of Brown's and Turner's girlfriends, Hondras's former girlfriend also testified. Theola Archibald had been dating John in April of 1987. She recalled him coming to her apartment on the first floor of a different Abbott high-rise after 3am, several hours after the crime was committed. She had agreed to store the TV and chair, asking no questions. Another witness testified about being in 1108 that night, Howard Govern. He served as a witness for Turner's defense explaining there had been additional people in the apartment that night. According to Govern, two other men and at least seven women had gathered in 1108 with Hondras, Turner, Flournoy, and Brown. Govern also said Hondras had taken him aside to the bedroom to show off his arsenal of about ten guns stashed under the mattress. This showed Hondras had the means to commit murder by gunfire. When Turner took the stand, he admitted he knew Miss May lived in 1109. They had crossed paths when he was still a resident. He maintained his story of merely helping Hondras move the furniture, that another man had been Hondras's accomplice in the homicide. When he was about to grab the TV, Turner had noticed the door to 1109 was slightly ajar. As captured by the Chicago Reader, Turner recalled, I was curious about the apartment, so I kicked the door open a little bit and walked in a few feet, saw the body in the bathroom, came back out, and picked up the TV. 
When asked by the prosecution why he didn't report the body, he insisted he couldn't tell if Ruthie was dead or alive when he opened the door. This compelled Assistant State's attorney, William Connolly, to speculate in closing arguments that Ruthie McCoy had been killed by Turner, quote, because she could identify him at a later date if she were left alive, end quote. It seemed like a possible motive. While gesturing at Ruthie's stolen property, Connolly maintained, quote, This is all that Miss McCoy had of value that was taken. This is what her life was worth. End quote. Bernard Sarley, Turner's other attorney, may have bitten off more than he could chew with his closing arguments. He focused on the larger issues of poverty and race. Arguing suspicion cast on his client was an outcome of systematic racial biases. Sarley said of Turner, quote, If there are things that seem stupid or seem strange that Edward Turner might have done, consider that 911 tape too, please. Edward Turner lived on the west side in a project. If he calls up police and says, Hello, I'm Edward Turner. I just walked into an apartment and found a body there he probably becomes the number one suspect, end quote. While the Chicago PD was criticised for their slow response to the 911 call and the lack of several days in discovering Ruthie's body, facts presented about life in the projects were also valid. The case was handled differently than it would have been in a middle-class white neighbourhood because law enforcement couldn't keep up with the amount of violent crimes committed in densely populated housing projects. The CHA actually ended up forming their own police department in 1990, and they were the highest paid patrolmen in the entire city. Ultimately, it would be up to the jury to decide if the state had presented enough evidence to convince them of Turner's guilt. After four hours of deliberation, the jury emerged with a verdict. Edward Turner was determined not guilty of first-degree murder, armed robbery, home invasion, and residential. This verdict must have been frustrating for Willie McCoy, but even he wasn't sure about Turner. He told the Chicago Reader, maybe he was innocent, maybe even if he wasn't, you can't convict an individual on such little evidence. Willie agreed racism played a significant role in how his sister had been treated by authorities. In the same article, he said, if that had been a white woman that called police like my sister did, you know they would have gone into her apartment. As for Hondras, closing arguments were heard for his case on April 3, 1990. His attorney, Alan Sincox, reiterated the testimony of Tim Brown, aimed to take himself out of the equation to avoid being fingered as a suspect. The focus on Brown seemed odd, as Hondras was the one on trial. In the end, Judge Getty determined there had not been enough evidence presented to establish Honduras as the perpetrator beyond a reasonable doubt. According to the Chicago Reader, before discharging Honduras, Judge Getty said the following, quote, There's more than one tragedy in this case. The most obvious is the brutal murder, robbery and home invasion of Ruthie McCoy. The second is the failure of the Chicago Police Department to respond in a professional manner to Ruthie McCoy's impassioned plea for help. 
Had the Chicago Police Department performed with minimal competence, they would have, in all probability, recovered evidence. And since it was almost immediately after the event, possibly even the perpetrator. This case was not lost by the state's attorneys. This case was not even lost by the detectives who got the only evidence they could in a damaged and sanitized crime scene. This case was lost by the patrol division of the Chicago Police Department, who stood by with a deaf ear to the multiple reports of gunshots being fired in 1109. They just couldn't be bothered with the hassle of entering a locked door, so they let them get away with it. End quote. Ruthie McCoy's killer was never caught. The case met the same fate as many other crimes emerging from Chicago's housing projects. It fell into oblivion. The interest of Chicago readers, Steve Bagheera, had been an anomaly, as he seemingly the only journalist who followed and analyzed the case. He wrote two follow-up articles, one in 1990 and the other in 2014, examining the ramifications of housing segregation in Chicago around the same time of Ruthie's death. In the last 15 years, most of Chicago's housing projects, including Abbott Homes, have been demolished. The CHA patrol force was dismantled in 1999 as more projects were shut down. New, mixed-income developments were constructed, which limited the availability of low-income housing. This approach did little to solve the plight of poverty, as many former residents from the projects simply moved to other poor African-American neighborhoods in Chicago or pushed their way out to the suburbs. This migration contributed to a gentrified downtown area. The same issues continue to plague Chicago. Segregation is still a reality today, and so is unemployment. The 2018 article in The Atlantic reported 40% of African Americans in Chicago aged 20 to 24 are out of work and school, compared to 7% of white residents in the same age bracket. In 1988, Ruthie's daughter, Vanita McCoy, sued the Chicago Housing Authority. The suit cited a faulty building design and the absence of security procedures as factors in her mother's death. Vanita sought $1.5 million in compensation. It is unclear if she won the settlement. While the interconnected design of the units gave criminals an opportunity, maybe Ruthie had also found herself in the midst of a perfect storm. Her struggles with mental illness made her more vulnerable in her dismal home environment, where people survived the only way they had been taught. In the months preceding her death, Ruthie had finally found a light at the end of poverty's endless dark tunnel. She was bettering herself through education, had been more social, and was making progress in the battle against her inner demons. Sadly, monsters really had come through the bathroom mirror. It wasn't just a movie legend after all.
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. This is the place where Black is the main character, where we dive into something new like the latest season of Them, The Scare, and the award-winning American fiction. Or add to the experience by buying or renting the biopic of a legend, Bob Marley, One Love. And add on channels like Paramount Plus and Stars to bask in nostalgia with Beverly Hills Cop and BMF. Explore Prime Video's culture-rated collection and enjoy old-school greats and new-school hits. Restrictions apply. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details.